Good morning, Waterstone. Glad that you've decided to worship with us this morning. My name is Nick Lillo. I'm the, the uh, missions pastor here at Waterstone. We, we have been in the midst of a series called Love This Book. And uh, we've been looking at the large story of the scriptures. And as we do that, we've been looking at each book of the Bible. We have begun looking at the prophets. Uh, prophets were those old, cranky, oftentimes incredibly weird guys in the Old Testament. They did two things. They uh, called God's people, Israel, back to the covenant that they had made with God. They had fallen into idolatry and disobedience, so they called them back, called them to repentance. But second, the prophets uh, begin to set the stage for the coming the Messiah. So repentance and Messiah, you see those two things happening again and again in the prophets. This morning, we come to the book of Micah. Micah was a prophet that lived about 700 years before Jesus. He's a contemporary of Isaiah. And in the passage we're going to look at, he, he I think, reveals God's heart and God's desires for his people. If you ever wanted to know what God desires for your life, uh, this is the passage you want to understand. It's absolutely critical. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to invite you into our discussion this morning of this incredibly powerful text. We, we pray that your spirit would open up our hearts to what you have to say to us. That you'd encourage us and challenge us and convict us and motivate us and help us understand how we might live to please you better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I have a question for you. What would a, a, a mature, committed Christian look like? I know, <laughs> a lot like Jesus. But if Jesus were here today, what would he look like? I mean, how would he live in 2020? How would you describe the mature follower of Jesus? I know they would love Jesus, but even then, what does that look like? How do they behave? What do they value? What's important to them? They might go to church every Sunday. They would be fervent in worship. They would tithe. They would uh, probably own a bunch of Bibles and even read them often. They would pray. They would be nice to people and uh, care for others. If they were married, they would love their spouse and love their family. If they were single, they would, uh, would be chaste. They wouldn't drink too much. They'd be generous. They would use their words carefully. But is all, well, is that all there is? I mean, what does the genuine Christian life really look like? In this passage, God gives us the top three things he is looking for from his people. In fact, uh, the three things he requires of us. I think we'll find it fascinating. Turn with me to, to Micah chapter 6. Micah writes there in verses 1 and 2, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. 
Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. What happen, is happening here is God is bringing, in a sense, a, a legal dispute or a lawsuit against his people. And the scene is the, the city gates where legal disputes were, were cited. And God is making his case. And his prosecuting attorney, in a sense, is Micah. He's speaking for God. And uh, the mountains are the witnesses, in a sense, kind of the judge because they are the ones that always are there. They have seen everything that Israel has done and has not done. Listen to the case. Verse three, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burned you, burned you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered, a king and a prophet that tried to attack Israel as they made their way through the wilderness. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Shittim is on one side of the Jordan, Gilgal is on the other. In other words, what God is saying here is, look, Israel, I've been good to you. I've not been a burden. I've rescued you. I've given you leadership. I've given you protection. I brought you into the promised land. I took you across the Jordan. Man, I, I, I've been good to you. All these righteous things I've done for you. I've treated you well and fairly and justly. And the implied question is, Israel, how are you going to respond? I've been faithful to my end of the covenant. I've loved you and been gracious to you and cared for you done it well. So what are you going to do in response? You know, when you think about that, that's kind of a relevant question for us. If God had been good and gracious to Israel, he even more so has been good and gracious to us. I mean, he, he has rec rescued us. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He's extended to us his grace, and he's done it at huge cost to himself. He's given his son to provide us salvation on the cross. In a sense, we are under obligation. So the question is, how do we respond to the incredible grace of God in our lives? What's the right response? Well, Israel has an idea. Suddenly, there is a, a change of scene. We move from the gate of the city to, to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, from the court to the church, uh, you can picture it. A worshiper who is representative of the people is coming up the steps uh, to the entrance of the temple. They are going to bow down before God and, and worship. Listen, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now note, the, the assumption here is that the appropriate response to the gracious acts of God is worship. It's not a bad response. Now they did it in their culturally appropriate way. They offered sacrifices. 
that was their form of worship. But worship is not a bad response. That seems incredibly appropriate. Isn't that, in a sense, what we do every Sunday morning? We, we gather to, to, to sing praises, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to listen to his word. We, we worship all in response to his gracious acts in our lives. Israel figures that's what God wants. That's what he requires. Well, it's important, but that's not the essence of what he requires. We'll see that in a moment. Before we do, though, I, I think it's important to, to note a couple of things. As you go through this passage, one of the things you see is that their worship escalates to the extreme. In other words, it starts off with burnt offerings, which anyone could do, and then uh, young calves, the wealthy could do that, then thousands of rams, and maybe the king could do that, and then they want to give 10,000 rivers of oil, olive oil. Well, no one could do that. Um, then it turns bad, right? He says, shall I offer my firstborn for the transgressions my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Suddenly, um, it goes too far. They make God out to be just like the Canaanite gods, thinking he desires human sacrifices, which is something he never would desire. You know, worship often reveals what we think of God, often reveals our theology. And here you see that at its core, their theology is pretty bankrupt. The second thing, though, to note here, and this is very subtle, they changed their focus and purpose of their worship as it became more extreme from God to themselves. At first, it was about gratitude, a response to his graciousness in their lives. It was about honoring God and giving him glory through their sacrifices and gifts. That's where it starts. But then it shifts. And the focus isn't on God's glory. Rather, it shifts to something that they want, and that's forgiveness. In fact, they're willing to give their firstborn so that they can be absolved. And suddenly they were worshiping for their benefit, not God's exaltation. They end up making worship all about them and their needs. You know, as I was reading this text... I began wondering if sometimes we have taken our worship and made it more about us than about God. For the Israelites, it became all about meeting their need for forgiveness, uh, something they'd even give their firstborn for. I wonder if times suddenly it becomes our needs and wants, they begin to take center stage in our worship. We start out worshiping as a response to God's work and graciousness in our lives, but then slowly we become more and more about our experience, what we want, what we need, what we like. Do I like the music? Did the service move me? Did it make me feel good? Did I feel God's presence? Will it make me grow? Was the sermon challenging? Was it funny? Did it make me laugh? Did it make me cry? I wonder if at times it seems that Sunday morning worship has become more about entertaining us than it has been about exalting God. You know, last summer I was in uh, Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. My wife was in the hospital for two months, and I discovered that 
uh, right around the place I was staying, there were about 10, 11 different churches. So every Sunday I would uh, walk to a different church just to see how others would worship. One of the churches I visited was a Greek Orthodox church called St. Constantine and Helen. Looked on the website and it said that their worship started very early at 8. So I showed up at 8 and when I got there, it surprised me, the whole parking lot was empty. And I thought, well, maybe they canceled the service. But since I was there and the door was open, I decided to go anyway. And I walked into the worship center and it was fascinating to me. Sitting down front was an old woman. A few rows up was an old man. And then on stage were two readers and two priests. And they were in midst of this worship service. They were reciting prayers. They were doing the literature, literature, liturgy. They, they were burning incense. They were were, were doing readings and responsive readings, and, and they sang. And a lot of it wasn't even in English. It, it was in Greek. When the priest saw that I was there during one point of the service, he actually came down and talked to me and tried to explain what was going on. And I began to wonder, why are they doing this? I mean, if no one is here, why are they going through this whole ritual of worship? The priest told me that in the service, uh, eventually a bell would ring and the formal part of the worship would begin. And that happened, the bell rang, and I began to notice that people began showing up. So at the end of the morning, when they celebrated the Eucharist, there was almost 200 people there. And, and, And they did a fine job of preaching the scriptures. It was a great message, and they celebrated the Eucharist. And as I reflected on that, I thought, why do they do this? For an hour and a half, when nobody was there, then it hit me. They were doing that, not for the congregation or for the people. In one sense, uh, the people were irrelevant. It didn't matter if they showed. Because God was there. And he was the only audience that mattered. You know, I sit there thinking, oh, this is, this is terrible worship. But the more I thought about it, I realized this wasn't terrible worship at all. From God's perspective, maybe this was amazing worship. Because it was truly about and for him. Well, back to the text. Um, As important as worship is, and it's important and it's not optional and it's mandatory for those who follow Jesus, it's something we should engage in and and give our hearts to. This text is telling us it's not the ultimate thing that God wants from us in response to his grace in our lives. In fact, it's telling us it's not even the top three. Notice what happens in verse 8. God says, look, and he implies, I, I, I don't necessarily want your worship. What I want of you is this. Listen to verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, the word there is actually Adam, human being. He has shown you, O mortal, human being, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He's going to lay out three things for us. 
And, and notice this. He says this is required. In other words, these three things are not optional. They're, they're not simply things for, for the radical and committed fringe. They're not things simply that he hopes for or, or desires. More than that, these are things he requires. They're absolutely essential and core for all those who follow God and have been recipients of his grace. Let's look at them closely. The first thing he says is that we are to act justly. The word here for justly is the, the Hebrew word mishpat. It's a word that shows up again and again and again in the Old Testament. In fact, over 200 times. So it's an incredibly important theme in Scripture. And at its most basic meaning, it means to treat other people equitably, rightly, fairly. Uh, it means to give people their rights and what is due them. So it means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. Uh, that's kind of in the realm of the law court and punishment. But it means more than just punishment or acquittal of wrongdoing. It, it also has this, this other implication of giving people their rights. It means to treat other people rightly, to give them what is due, to treat them fairly and equally. It's interesting when we begin thinking about justice. I think one of the things that's true for all of us is we value justice especially when it's justice for ourselves. There is something in us that wants to be treated fairly. We want justice for us. Uh, Dave Hagler is a former referee and umpire who tells this great story uh, about justice. It was actually in the LA Times some time ago. He writes this, he says, I was driving too fast in the snow in Boulder, Colorado. And a policeman pulled me over and gave me a speeding ticket. I, I tried to talk him out of it, telling him how worried I was about insurance, what a good driver I am, and so on. He told me if I didn't like it, I could go to court. Well, first game of the next baseball season, I'm umpiring behind home plate. And the first batter up is the same policeman. I recognize him. He recognizes me. He asked me, how did the thing with the ticket go? And I tell him, swing at everything. <laughs> we like it when we can get justice for ourselves. A mishpat means we're to be just people, to exercise justice, to be just in our dealings with others, to respect others' rights, to give every person their due, to treat them on their merits, regardless of their race or social status. We're not to show favoritism. We are to give people their due. I am to treat other people well. But, and this is the part we sometimes miss, mishpat also means we are to seek justice and fairness and equality for others as well. In other words, it's not simply a call that I'm to, 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 to be just in my dealings, but to do justice is to seek justice for others. In other words, there is a call here to make the world a right and just place, 
to pursue just causes, to see all people treated equitably and rightly in our community, to, to work for, for the common good. That is why this word mishpat is so often connected to, to four classes of people in the Bible, what some people call the quartet of the vulnerable. You, you see this again and again and again in scriptures. Uh, the quartet is the widow, the immigrant, the orphan, and the poor. God is concerned that they get justice. And what all four groups have in common is they are all vulnerable, defenseless. They are groups that have no social or economic power. So it, it is easy for them to be mistreated, to be treated unjustly. If we are people of mispot, then we are to be watching out for them, caring for them, loving on them, helping them, protecting them. Um, to live justly means you cannot simply ignore the plight of the vulnerable. In a sense, to, to do justice means we're to be agents of justice. Uh, we can't correct all the injustices of the world, but we can do something. We can notice, we can read, we can study, we can be thoughtful about what is going on in our world, we can pray, we can speak up, we can at least have the courage to stand up for people who are getting treated unfairly in our world. You know, this week, um, somebody sent me a video uh, I guess it's on a YouTube channel called Holy Post. And it was on race in America. It's, it's worth looking up. It was put together by a man named Phil Vischer. Phil Vischer is one of the creators of the Veggie Tales. And he's the voice of Bob the Tomato, along with a bunch of other voices on Veggie Tales. But in this video, and it's only about 15, 16 minutes long, he walks through how blacks have been systematically mistreated through, his, through the history of our country. And thus explains some of the reasons why the average black person has one-tenth of the household wealth of a white person. It helps us understand some of the frustration that's going on in our culture. He talks about the vagrancy laws uh, right after the Civil War that were only applied to blacks that said that if you didn't have a job, you could be arrested. So they were arrested and put in jail, and then uh, they would be rented out to the plantation and have to work for the plantation where they'd just been freed from, only now without pay. It was called convict leasing. Talks about the racial segregation laws that we know as the Jim Crow laws, which... Uh, over and over and over mistreated blacks and, and were not overturned until 1954. Talks about the Southern Manifesto that came about right after the Jim Crow laws were defeated where the South then instituted 50 new Jim Crow laws. Talked about redlining, which determines which neighborhoods are safe and which ones are unsafe so that you can get loans. It kept blacks from getting loans to buy houses. Talked about the FHA restrictions on giving loans, that they typically went to white people but not black people. Talk about the GI Bill, GI Bill where few of the, the benefits uh, went to non-whites, even though over a million soldiers were eligible for them. 
talked about the war on drugs and the poli policing policies that went with it that, that in so many ways have devastated the black community and exploded our, our, our prison population. We, all these things I had very little knowledge of. And it was disturbing. At the end, he says, look, I'm not here to tell you what the right solution is to all that's going on between the races in our country. He says, because to be honest, I don't know. But then he says, I'm just here to ask you to do one thing. And he looks into the camera and as he says, the one thing, care. That was incredibly convicting to me. When there is injustice, God's people care. Let me ask you a question. Why? Why does uh, acting justly, why does God want that to be one of the key markers of his people? I think the answer is, is that God wants us to be people who reflect his character, who in a sense image him. Last week, uh, 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 in fact, at the worship service outside, I saw a little kid who was about two now, and I looked at his face, and I thought, oh, I know exactly whose kid you are, because you look exactly like your dad. I mean, you are the spitting image of your father. You're just miniature. And I thought to myself, oh, that's what God wants of us. He wants us to be the spinning, spitting image of him to reflect his heart, his values, his character, his desire for justice. Listen to Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9. He executes justice for the oppressed, talking about God, and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant, sustains the fatherless and the widow, and he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Uh, let me paraphrase that for you a bit because it is a good list of what it means to do justice. Saying doing justice means engaging in activities like feeding the hungry. It means releasing the unjustly imprisoned and enslaved people. It means working with the sick and the blind. It means loving and helping those burdened down. That means counseling and emotional support. It means guarding the immigrant. Watch over literally means to guard. So it means to keep the immigrant, the refugee, from being exploited or hurt or mistreated. It means protecting their rights, which they have because they are created in the image of God. Then it means relieving and strengthening the single parent, the family, the widow, and the orphan. That's doing justice. If we care about justice, then we will care about those things. And if we do not care about justice, then I don't think we're reflecting God's heart. And you may be thinking, wait a second, Nick. Doesn't this all just sound like the liberal agenda? And to a lot of people, it sounds like that, and it doesn't sit well. And I understand that. But would you let me make an observation? 
You know, a careful reading of the Bible clearly tells us that God holds some very conservative views. When we get to places in the Bible that talk about gender, family, and sex, valuing the unborn and the role of the state, then God sounds incredibly conservative. But careful reading of the Bible also clearly tells us that God holds some very liberal views as well. He demands radical care for the poor, compassion for the immigrant, calls for mass debt forgiveness, the year of Jubilee, insists on very careful stewardship of the environment. He rails against the abuse and the idolatry of wealth. And God sounds incredibly liberal. Here's the problem. We tend to think in culturally created political frameworks. And sometimes we label ourselves by those frameworks in a certain way, conservative, liberal, right, left, red, blue, Republican, Democrat. And when we do, we are tempted to take on the whole framework of that position rather than being carefully thoughtful and nuanced about each issue. When it comes to God in the Bible, we need to shake our minds free from the human political categories like liberal and conservative. Look, the Bible does not fit into any of them. And we should never read the Bible through that lens. It does an injustice to the scriptures. I think as Christians, we need to opt out of that kind of framework thinking. Let me be honest. No political party, party accurately reflects a biblical worldview. Liberal or conservative, right or left, blue or red, Democrat, or Republican. They all get some things right, and they all get many things wrong. We need to think in terms of a biblical framework rather than a cultural, political, or movement framework. And those, in these polarized times, we need to stand above the fray. God's politics are more complicated, and more challenging, and more nuanced than most of us can imagine. I mean, in the end, Jesus was rejected both by the liberal zealots and by the conservative Pharisees alike. Well, one of the requirements that God has for us is to do justice. The second requirement is to love mercy. And the word here for mercy is this word chesed. Um, chesed is this, this great word. It's the word that is used to describe God's love, his covenant love for his people. And it, it's a word that always implies a, a relationship. You can't have chesed for a thing. You can only have chesed for a person. It, it also is typically something that happens when there's a power differential. In other words, it's, it's the wealthy to the poor, the advantage to the disadvantage, the well-off to those with uh, out so much and who are struggling, the powerful to the weak. That's how Hesed works in the midst of that relationship. And Hesed typically speaks of a commitment to express action. Uh, if you understand that, about Hesed, you understand why it often gets translated as compassion or kindness or mercy or loving kindness. I mean, justice is giving somebody their due, protecting their rights, standing up for the right cause. But, but mercy speaks to the relationship and compassion and entering into a relationship where you care for someone, not because of what they do for you, but because of what you can do for them. 
It's not simply giving a person their, their due. It's giving a person love. Now, it's intriguing to me that God tells us to do justice, but to love mercy. And the word for love here is ahava. And it's an interesting word that means deep affection and it speaks of the emotion. In a sense, what, what, what he's saying here, you do justice, but you're to be passionate about mercy. You, you see, in justice, there are no degrees. You either do it or you don't do it. But in mercy or loving kindness, there are gradations. Hesed is something we're to always grow in. We, we can always be more gracious and more merciful and more loving and more kind. We are to be so passionate about mercy uh, uh, that it grows in us more and more and becomes the core of who we are in our heart. I mean, think about it. What would it be like? What would it be like if we were known as a person of hesed? What would it be like to be the kind of person who, who people wanted to be around simply because they knew when they were around you, they would experience loving kindness. They would be the experience of mercy and compassion. They knew that when they were going to be around you, they were going to be loved on. Or, or what would it be like to be a community of Hesed? What if Waterstone became the place where people flocked to because they knew that in this place and in this community, they were going to experience hesed. They were going to experience loving kindness. They were going to experience mercy and compassion. This was a community where, where if they showed up, they knew they were going to be loved on. I think that often happens in our midst. Here's the question, folks. As a church and as people, are we becoming more merciful, more compassionate, more tender, more gracious to all those around us? I mean, is that our identifying characteristic? Is that what we are known for as people and as a church? So we are to do justice, we are to love or be passionate about mercy, but then we are to walk humbly with our God. Uh, to walk means to live in a certain way, uh, to orient one's whole life around. And the word for humbly here is, well, it's kind of a strange word, to be honest. It's used here and once in Proverbs and nowhere else in the Old Testament. So we're not certain of its meaning, but most scholars suggest it has this notion of not insisting on one's own way, but readily doing what God wants. In a sense, to walk humbly means to walk in a way where you defer to him. Some people translate it circumspectly. We are to walk carefully, circumspectly, following God where he leads. When I think of this phrase of walking humbly with God, I I, I think of it as if we are in a dance with God. And the question is, is how will we dance with him? Some people dance and don't invite God to the dance at all. I mean, the idea of inviting God to dance never occurs to them. They are out there on the stage going crazy, dancing all on their own. Then there are those who, who uh, invite God to the dance but they keep him on the periphery. 
sitting on the sidelines. They use him as a partner only when necessary, when they need his services or his intervention. Others invite God to dance with them. And he does. He is active in their lives. But they take the lead and they expect God to follow. They do not mean to, but in a sense, they kind of use God. They try to get him to do their bidding, to serve him. They make their relationship with him all about them rather than about him. They dance, but they don't let him lead. And then there are those who dance with God and make it all about him. They dance and make him the center of their lives. They give him his proper place as their king. And thus they defer to him in all things. They let him lead and they follow. In fact, it's as if they dance, tiptoeing circumspectly to make sure they go everywhere he leads. They understand that the dance is not about them. It's all about him. Those are the ones who walk humbly with their God. Folks, bottom line, God has been incredibly good to us, gracious to us. And though it's good for us to respond to his grace in our lives through worshiping him, that's not the essence of what he wants, although it's important. What he desires even more is that we would be people who do justice, are passionate about mercy, and dance our hearts out with him. Amen.